hi and welcome to our knowledge podcast preparing for ST4 interviews. Uh, today we're going to talk about the clinical scenarios and in particular today acute exacerbation of COPD. So my name's Tom Mason, I'm a respiratory registrar in South London and with me today I've got Dr Nikki Smallcomb who's a ST4 respiratory registrar in North East London. Hi Nikki. Hi thanks for having me. Great. So today we've got a made-up scenario. Uh, it's hopefully reflective of a common respiratory clinical interview scenario of an exacerbation of COPD. So just as a brief outline of what we'll do, we'll read out the scenario and then we'll discuss between us how we might approach this scenario in an interview situation, how, how we'd um, go through the history, examination, investigations, and a bit of a discussion about what extra points might make a candidate stand out in this station. Hopefully, anyway. Let's move straight on to the scenario. So you are a respiratory registrar. You are asked to see a 65-year-old man who's presented to A&E with shorts of breath. He has a background of COPD, and his respiratory rate is 26 with oxygen saturations of 88% on air, blood pressure 117 over 68, heart rate 112 with a temperature of 37.5. Explain how would you assess and manage this patient and give differential diagnoses. So Nikki, how would you, how would you approach this scenario in your interview? So as I said, I think this is a really common scenario. So I'd want to first of all make it clear to my interviewer that I know that this is a sick patient that I would be wanting to see promptly. So just highlighting that I recognise that they're hypoxic, tachycardic and tachypneic with a mild fever and that I'd want to sort of go and establish how that the patient was in a place of safety first and foremost. So I tend to go and say that I would do a brief A to E assessment. And I think it really is when we say brief A to E assessment, just focusing on the key elements so if there's any evidence of clubbing that can be useful and if they're cyanosed but talking predominantly about what we can hear on the chest if they've got wheezing or if there's paucity of breath sounds and what their expansion's like etc so just the key things that will help you sort of going forwards to establish that that patient is um, in a place of safety and sort of saying that you'd get the repeat observations at that point too and I think quite quickly moving on to get a key focused history with some particular history points which I think uh, as we said we'd want to have asked the patient about their duration of their symptoms um, and how breathless they are and how severe it is sometimes I sort of find it useful to say that I would grade it based on MRC breathlessness scale so get them to say what they can normally do at home uh, because obviously some of these patients you know struggle to get dressed at the best of times let alone when they're having an Mm. exacerbation and then talking a little bit about their sputum what it's like normally, has it changed, how's it changed, any blood, and then the infective symptoms, fever, etc. And then thinking about non-respiratory issues, so sort of chest pain, any swelling in their legs, etc. And I think these sort of things can help get a good picture of what's going on um, with the patient. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're completely right. I think it's important to keep things fairly brief at this stage you know, it's not paces, it's your respiratory interview, so they don't want to be hearing about the minutiae of clinical signs that you look for. I think the key things are that every question you ask should be trying to, you know, 
add to your clinical assessment and try to rule in or rule out things. Yeah. So I think other important things to think about from a you know CAPD risk point of view in the history are uh, you know what's their exacerbation frequency like? Mm. Are they in and out of hospital all the time with exacerbations, or is this you know quite uncommon for them to be in hospital? And also, have they had previous treatment escalation plans um, set in the past as well? Mm. Have they ever been to critical care? Have they had NIV or invasive ventilation? Those are important things to know. Smoking status is obviously really, really important for patients with COPD. And we'll perhaps come on to that a little bit later on, along with, you know, what is their usual inhaled therapy? Are they adherent to it? Mm. And have they been using increased salbutamol as well? Just gets you an idea of how things how things are for them generally. And Nikki, obviously this patient has COPD, they're breathless, they're a bit hypoxic. Um, obviously the history seems to be pointing us towards an acute exacerbation of COPD. But what do you think would be the other important things for us to have in the back of our mind and to demonstrate to the examiner that you're thinking about as well? Yes, I think it's really important to to show that you've got broad differentials and particularly things like community acquired pneumonia I'd be thinking about or COVID obviously very topical or influenza Mm. Um, but also things like a PE we know that there's a lot of missed PEs in our COPD cohorts um, and things Mm. get labelled as a COPD exacerbation when they're not so I think showing an awareness of that and how broad you know a presentation of tachypnea and tachycardia with some hypoxia in a COPD patient can be is useful. Mm. But that would be the main thing I'd sort of be thinking along the lines of potentially pneumonia or sort of viral infection. And of course, a pneumothorax is the other thing just to have at the back of one's mind. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, for the interview purposes, obviously you're trying to ascertain the diagnosis, demonstrate, you know, how to treat it, rule out any alternative diagnoses, and then also identify any complications of the diagnosis. Mm So you've mentioned excluding a pneumothorax, which is you know, not only a different diagnosis, but can also be a complication of COPD in terms of secondary pneumothorax. Infective exacerbation could lead to a community-acquired pneumonia, which again, you'll pick up with X-ray consolidation. And again, the exacerbation can also be complicated as well by, for instance, acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. So we'll come on to the blood gases um and also any signs of corpulmonale or right heart failure mm. which can be evident in end-stage CAPD as well so good to mention that you'd look for any you know signs of fluid overload raised JVP peripheral edema etc so yeah that's that's great so I think you know probably at this point the examiner would want to move things forward in the in the scenario and might ask um what further investigations you'd you'd want to get at this point we've briefly touched on this already but what what would you sort of suggest in the first instance Nikki? Yeah so I think ABG would be sort of my first port of call I'm wanting to get a portable chest x-ray I think saying that you wanted to be portable recognizing that the patient's sick and that we don't necessarily want them traveling around for hours to the x-ray department and obviously baseline bloods as well. Yeah exactly so so we could then be given a, a blood gas by the, by the examiner. So, for instance, in this scenario, we say the gas is on air. The pH is 7.38, PCO2 
PO2 7.71 and a bicarb of 26.2. Um, if you were in the interview hearing that blood gas, Nikki, would that influence your thoughts or change your management or alarm you in any way? Yeah, so I think I'd just be, I sort of want to say to the examiner that I can see that obviously they're not acidotic at the moment, but they are mildly hypercapnic and hypoxic. Having said that, they don't have a raised bicarb. So he's certainly someone that I just want to keep an eye on, make sure, of course, that they're having controlled oxygen. And I think it would be someone that I would set their target stats at 88 to 92, and the morbidity and mortality associated with you know, having people on too much oxygen in COPD means that a lot of the time, if someone does have COPD, we'll just set their targets at 88 to 92 in hospital just to keep them safe. Mm. I think also, obviously here, we've been given how much oxygen they're on, but I have seen examples where ABGs are shown and candidates aren't necessarily told how much oxygen the patient's on. So I think it's always good to be vigilant on that because you can only really interpret it with how much oxygen the patient's on. That's the other thing. Yeah, definitely, 100% agree with that. Um, in terms of other investigations, we've mentioned the x-ray to exclude any pneumonia and pneumothorax. Obviously, full blood count, renal profile, CRP are all important in terms of helping us to guide, A, you know, how much of this do we think is infective in nature, in etiology, alongside, obviously, the clinical history. Something, I think, which is worth mentioning, really, to make yourself stand out in this sort of interview scenario is, say, that you would keep an eye out for the eosinophil count mm. because obviously obviously there's a, a spectrum of airway inflammation eosinophil, eosinophilic inflammation within COPD and that lies on a spectrum really between people who have a predominantly asthma phenotype but also alongside a smoking history and a fixed airflow obstruction in COPD to on the other end of the spectrum you know people who are just purely emphysematists and the eosinophil count probably um, identifies, you know, who's likely to respond to corticosteroids as part of their exacerbation of CFPD treatment. Obviously, at the moment, in the current guidelines, everyone gets prednisolone as part of their exacerbation CFPD management bundle, but I think it's an important point to make. Yeah. While we're on the subject of treatment, we've obviously mentioned controlled oxygen which is obviously important for these patients i think it really depends on how the candidate wants to play the scenario really but i think it's sometimes good if you can to try to work the acute management in as you go along treating things as you go so obviously you identify the patient as hypoxic you want to ensure that they're well oxygenated you identify that they're wheezy therefore you want to start them on some bronchodilation so salbutamol and ipotropium nebs an extra point while we're on the topic again just to make you stand out is mentioned that while on ipotropium nebs you'd want to hold any long-acting muscarinic antagonist mm. uh, which is obviously the majority of um CFD, therapy for CFD because there's a theoretical increased cardiovascular risk with that and then, Nikki, how would you approach the question of the role of antibiotics and exacerbation of CFPD? Yeah, so I, I think in this sort of setting, I'd always say that I do it as per my trust policy. Um, yeah, exactly. I think that's just always the safest option, isn't it? Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, so completely agree, you know, go by the local policy. I think it is good to keep in mind as well, though, you know, the importance of a diagnosis of pneumonia and how that would change the potential treatment 
So if there was consolidation on an X-ray, I think you'd have to treat it as a community-acquired pneumonia in terms of antibiotic therapy rather than exacerbation of COPD, which again would you know, be slightly broader spectrum in terms of the cover in most, uh, in most antibiotic policies. Obviously, a brief knowledge of relevant microbiology is important too. So most common bacterial causes are going to be Haemophilus, Moraxella, Pneumococcus, and then you've got the common viral triggers, so rhinovirus, RSV, influenza. The relevance of that for, bit, for here, I think, is just to say, make sure you send off a sputum sample, make sure you send off a viral PCR panel. And unfortunately, in you know, this post-pandemic world, a COVID swab as well, or at least a lateral flow, again, important to mention. Something else you can mention for bonus points as well, will probably be, is there any historic microbiology available for this patient? For instance, are they chronically colonized with pseudomonas, in which case they might need an antimicrobial with anti-pseudomonal cover, such as peptas or superfoxacin. Yeah, so I think, um, I think that covers the, the acute management side of things. Nikki, do you want to speak a little bit about, about the importance of identifying tobacco dependence in patients with exacerbation COPD? Yes, I think it's really important to sort of hammer home in the, in the interview how important you know that smoking cessation is. There's a, they created the pyramid in terms of quality, quality adjusted life years for what's most effective per cost of thing in COPD. And by far the most effective thing is vaccination. So we know that sort of flu vaccine, COVID vaccine, making sure people are up to date with their pneumococcal vaccines. And then, of course, after that is smoking cessation. And the perfect opportunity is when patients come into hospital to take that opportunity to have that conversation with them and find out what attempts they've had to quit before. Um, and sort of recognising and saying that you recognise, you know, that smoking isn't in and of itself a disease is tobacco dependence and it takes people sort of upwards of sometimes 30 times to quit I think mentioning as part, as part of your acute management that you'd also prescribe someone a nicotine patch as well as something that will give them sort of that that quick release as well so, so I tend to say that I'd give an inhalator because they've got then the action of the smoking as well as well as recognizing that they we want them to have community support on discharge so that you'd refer them to your smoking cessation services and I think then along with that, the other thing that I always mention, because I always sort of think of it as a three is pulmonary rehabilitation. So just asking patients, have mm. they been through it before? And if not referring on, well, and even if they have, they can then be referred again. And I think just making that point really clear as a candidate shows that you, you realise that it's a lot, get really improving CAPD care. A lot of it does come down to getting the basics right, because a lot of the patients that have frequent exacerbations are still smoking and haven't had their vaccines and things like that. So I think, showing that you, you're, you know, you've got a good, safe understanding of the basics is really important. Yeah, I think that's really important, obviously, for COPD patients, but also in the interview as well, to show that you're aware of everything that happens, you know, after the AMU, after the acute mm -hmm. admission, what the more long-term important aspects of, of care are. Yeah. And yeah, pulmonary rehab is, is, absolutely, is absolutely key, as is reviewing their inhaled therapy, thinking about it, you know, do they need escalating? Do they really need that inhaled corticosteroid? Or do they need a inhaled corticosteroid added as well? Yeah. If there is an untreated eosinophilic airway component as well. Yeah, definitely. 
I think just briefly, the other things to mention, which could crop up in the interview scenarios that develops, um, would be the role of acute NIV. Should the exacerbation be complicated by acute hypercapnic respiratory failure? So obviously really important to know the indications for NIV in the acute settings, obviously acidemia accompanied by hypercapnia. There's uh, some really good ETS guidelines on acute hypercapnic respiratory failure, which I would 100% recommend that everyone preparing for the interview reads and absorbs because uh, it's all very useful and very self-explanatory and really, really valuable day-to-day but essentially you know these people do deteriorate with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure um, and it's yeah important to consider NIV and alongside that especially making sure that the examiners are aware that you know whenever you're thinking about acute NIV you're also thinking about potential further escalations of therapy so would they be for uh, this will obviously depend on your local setup as well but would would they be for NIV in a critical care setting as opposed to ward respiratory care unit would they be for escalation to mechanical ventilation should NIV be unsuccessful and should they uh, should they be resuscitated in the event of cardiac arrest and all of those things should really be decided at the point of initiating NIV, so that there's a good, clear plan for what should happen in the event of deterioration. And yeah, making sure that the examiners know that you know that as well. Yeah, that's really important. Um, and, and anything you want to add for this scenario, do you think, Nikki? No, I think we, we've covered a lot. Of it. I think the only other two things I would mention, and obviously it depends how time goes in, in your scenario, but just talking about like the functional status of your patients, often these patients are very slender, cachectic, getting a nutritionist, dietitianist, dietitian involved. Mm. And, and then just thinking about if these patients do need LTOT and the indications for LTOT, because that's another thing that can come up for these. But I, I think I totally agree about the BTS and NIV guidelines. I think they, in the run up to my interview, they were the only guideline that I read fully. I actually read all of the NIV mm. guidelines. It's just so useful. But I also used the NICE COPD guideline and the GOLD guideline, but just sort of skimmed the important bits of those because they're quite useful as well to give yeah. an oversight because COPD is so common. Great. Well, thank you very much for talking through, uh, through that scenario with me, Nikki, and we'll join you again next time. Brilliant. See you then. <laughs>